Pastor Lamar, I think, gets back this week. And uh, having me fill in is just to give you an extra appreciation. You'll be so glad to see him next Sunday. So let's just pray for them as they fly back. Heavenly Father, we do pray for Pastor Lamar and Lynn, for their family. We pray for all our staff, Lord. Pray uh, for them and their families that you'd bless them, watch over them, encourage them. Pray that uh, you would uh, give them wisdom, make them fruitful. And Lord, we just pray that we would be a help and encouragement to our families, or to their, uh, them and their families. We just want to commit this time to you now, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. I mentioned my wife, Karen. I think we've got a photo of me and her uh, up there, but um, that can pop up. We, uh, that's, uh, that's Karen. She's, we've been married. Yeah, yeah. When any, anybody meets my wife, they applaud me and they say, there must be more to you than we're seeing, uh, apparently. <laughs> but uh, we've been married a uh, little over seven years. We were both widowed in 2011. She was married to uh, Craig Goldfain, who was, uh, they were on staff with the same organization we are currently, the Navigators. But she's by far the more interesting person. Her parents were missionaries to Africa, and then she came back, went to Biola uh, Univers University in L.A., and then went back with Craig for 10 years in Ghana, 10 more years in uh, Kenya, and then working with African immigrants in Denver. So, uh, yeah, she's uh, a privilege to be married to, but she's just really interesting. We're also grandparents. Uh, between the two of us, we have six kids. These are some of those kids. We have 11 grandkids. We, they aren't all in the picture, but that's uh, some of them. Yeah, it's a nice picture. Uh, it's, uh, that one's a couple of years old now. I, somebody said that, uh, you know, all those of us that are grandparents know how great it is to have grandkids. And somebody said grandchildren are God's reward for parents not disowning their children when they were teenagers. So uh, you get this extra blessing if you've kind of stuck with it. We're going to talk a little bit about change today. Um, as I think about change, I think about uh, resolutions that maybe you made at the beginning of the year, and then we're going to talk about how as God changes us, he can use us to change the world. Uh, for me, this time of year, every year means a diet. And uh, man, I, if I had more discipline, but uh, I, I wrote down some thoughts related to diet and exercise. I signed up for an exercise class and was told to wear loose clothing. I told them if I could wear loose clothing, I wouldn't have to go to your class. I get all my clothing. And then uh, I was thinking about this one this morning because we have mirrors in our bathroom. Have you noticed uh, more recent houses have more mirrors in bathrooms? My, it's just too much information. I, this one says, they say you're supposed to listen to what your body is telling you. I look in the mirror and my body just points and laughs. I... Uh, What's another one? Uh, uh, oh, yeah. I, so I've been on this diet for three months now. The first two weeks, after two weeks, I'd lost, well, I'd lost 14 days is what I'd lost. And, and the will to live, that's the other thing. I, it's been hard for me. And I heard a guy say, he said, hey, I'm in shape. Rounds of shape. Yeah, I, I can join that. And then I have a friend named Andy Lee. I... I he said this, and I had to think twice before I caught it. He said, uh, 
he said, I appreciate you struggling with this diet. He said, I'm actually on two diets simultaneously. Uh, and I said, two? He said, yeah, one didn't have enough food. So I just keep adding diets till you get enough food there. So maybe that's another approach. Well, yeah, pray for me and uh, discipline in that area. Changing ourselves, God changing us, changing the world. That's what we're going to talk about today. I, I love this statement that God is looking for men and women, ordinary, everyday people, who will let him use them in extraordinary ways. He's, he's, that's what he's always done. He's used ordinary people, and he wants to do, uh, use us as well. We're going to be looking at uh, one of my favorite passages in the Bible. When I got around the navigators, they said, you ought to look for some kind of life anchor passages, some verses that you can really hang on to. So one for me that uh, meant a lot uh, when, my, uh, when Charlene passed away is Isaiah 41.10. I tend to think everybody ought to memorize this verse, but it's God speaking. He says, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will hold you up with my righteous right hand. So that's one of my anchor verses. I woke up in the night last night, and I was just repeating and praying that verse back, claiming that promise. But another one is this passage that we're going to look at today, Matthew 9, 35 through 38. And it's just a little brief description of Jesus' life and ministry, but the principles there have really helped me and encouraged me over the years. So Matthew 9, 35 through 38, let me see if I can get this right. It says, Jesus was going through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. Another version says, distressed and downcast like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. It's just such a great chapter, or a great passage, rather. We're just going to look at four principles illustrated there. It's funny standing up here. So Karen and I sit right over there, right back there. You don't usually get this perspective, and everybody's still awake, so that's a good sign. We'll see how it goes. Four principles. First verse, uh, or actually we'll start in the second verse. When Jesus saw the crowds, the first principle is that we need to see people the way Jesus sees people. Don't see people the way the media tells you to see people. Don't see people the way movies uh, try to shape your view. See people the way Jesus sees people. Someone said that we tend to see what we're looking for. And I, you know, one of the things I like about Karen is she just tends to see what she appreciates in people. We were looking at this passage in our connection class this morning in um, Acts 15 where these Pharisees have become Christians. Now they're giving all the Gentile Christians a hard time. They say, look, you got to be circumcised to this other stuff. And I, you know, I was just kind of frustrated with these Pharisees. And Karen said, uh... Isn't it great that they came to Christ? I said, well, I suppose that's one way to look at it. Or you could just nitpick and be negative like me. And, but she's, that's the way she is. How, 
what we look for is what we tend to see. You probably see that in cars. I own a, I just bought, two years ago we bought a 2013 Toyota Highlander. 10 years old is new for me, and so got this 20. Well, what I notice now is there are Toyota Highlanders all over the place. And to be really different, I bought a white one. Yeah, that was, you know, it's amazing. I haven't been arrested. The number of times I've tried to get into somebody else's car since I bought. But that's selective perception. You see what you're looking for. I think another principle, I didn't put these in the notes, but maybe this one I did, but how we see people shapes how we feel about people. Have you ever thought about that? How you see people in line in front of you, how you see somebody standing on a corner with a cardboard sign. I, you know, I passed, what, what was it, Eubank in Montgomery, and there was a lady there, and she was there with a dog, and I thought, I wonder, she probably never imagined her life would play out the way it has. You know, we want to see people the way Jesus sees people. I've got this, I've used it before, this uh, drawing that has to do with selective perception. Have you seen this? You know, you look up at that, and you can see either an old woman or a young woman. If you see the white area as kind of her looking down, and that's her beak, her nose, kind of big like mine, and then the little slash, that's her mouth, that's the old woman. But if you see the the thing that's part of the nose as a chin, and then the what is the eye of the old woman becomes an ear, and then it's a young woman looking over her shoulder. Can you see that? Yeah. You know, there's a couple of things again I like about that. One is nobody's just one thing. In America, we want people to be one thing. There are the people who agree with you, and they're the good people. There are the people who disagree with you, and they're the bad people. You know, I, I, uh, I was, I was uh, looking at some, up some stuff on grace, and I ran across this YouTube video of President Obama singing Amazing Grace. It's amazing. It's, uh, he was speaking at a memorial service for nine uh, people who were killed in a church in, uh, I think it was Charleston, South Carolina in 2015. And he's talking, and he starts... He's talking about grace and how these peop- the families of these victims had shown grace toward the guy. And he says, grace. He says, amazing grace. And then he just starts singing that song. And then all the people that are on stage behind him stand up. All the several thousand in the audience stand up. And he leads them in singing amazing grace. Yeah, never saw that on TV. At least I didn't. You can look it up. Uh, If you do, President Obama sings Amazing Grace. You can find it. He's got a great voice, by the way. But it's so moving. See, nobody's just one thing. And we want to see people the way Jesus sees people. So how did Jesus see people? I put a couple of... Oh, there's a great verse on this. 1 Samuel 16, 7. We're going to look at that a little later. But that's when... God sent Samuel to pick one of Jesse's sons, seven sons, one of his sons to be the next king after Saul. And basically the family and Samuel vote David least likely to succeed because they consider the other sons, they don't consider David. And then God intervenes and says, uh, as they're looking at the oldest son, they say, don't look at his appearance or at the height of his stature. For God sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, 
But the Lord looks at the heart. And I know one of the things that helps me when I see people, whether either their beliefs or their behavior give me struggles, is I think, you know, I wonder what life was like growing up being that person. My, my parents had problems, some pretty serious issues, and uh, I, I can remember one of the things that helped me as I got older is I thought, you know, when they were in college at, in Vanderbilt, they never thought, hey, let's make these choices end up this way. They just made some bad choices. So we need to see people the way Jesus sees people. What does he see? Well, he's, one thing he sees is the worth of people, doesn't he? Every person has value. Uh, one of my favorite verses, my first wife shared it with me, Charlene, uh, is Isaiah 43, 4. And part of the verse goes, God speaking, he says, you are precious in my sight. You are honored and I love you. And I thought so many times, I think about my grandkids, how much, and we, uh, several of my grandkids are here today, how much I pray that my kids and grandkids can just deep down in their bones know that they're precious and honored and loved by God. What would that do for our world? What would that do for the generation that's growing up? Just to, We need to help people see how much they're worth. He, God sees the worth of people. I think I will use that diamond story. Uh, nine, I told this in our class a couple of weeks ago, our connection class. And in 1905, there was a guy, I wrote his name down here. Uh, oh, yeah, Frederick Wells worked in a diamond mine. And he was a supervisor. He was finishing up near the end of the day. And he was this diamond mine went down thousands of feet into the earth. Well, he was walking out, and he wasn't far from the surface when he saw this piece of quartz up on a wall and that's what it looked like after it got cleaned up. But you can imagine it was embedded in a wall. And um, so he looked at it, he chipped it out, took it, took it in. And what I read was the person, he said, yeah, it was quartz and just threw it out the window. And then somebody else went out and got it, brought it back in. And it turned out to be the largest diamond that's ever been found. It was the size of a grapefruit. It... Uh, 33,100 carats. It's called the Cullinan Diamond. That's one of the something like 21 diamonds that were cut, cut out. The two largest of the diamonds are in the uh, British uh, Crown Jewels. Has anybody ever seen those? You do the Tower of London tour. And that's one of them. So you look at that first thing, the dirty quartz. You look at the second thing. That's kind of people, isn't it? What do you see? You know, and I think so much, we just miss the worth. I was looking up. So I, I'm not big into baseball. My son likes baseball a lot. I've got a friend, Phil Ward. He's a big San Francisco fan. But I just saw last year, there's a guy named Honus Wagner. And his um, baseball card just sold for $7.25 million. $7.25. Honus Wagner. And there you can look it up and see why it's so value, valuable. Uh, babe, babe Ruth, his card, this was two years ago. His rookie card um, sold for $6 million. But you know, when I looked at that, the thing I read is you can see the worth of something by what someone's willing to pay for it, right? It's just what it's worth to you. When Karen and I were dating, she was living in uh, Denver and I was living here. 
and I, uh, my schedule has some flexibility to it, so I moved some stuff off Monday to Tuesday, and then I would fly up every Monday to see her. And uh, somebody asked me, um, <laughs> what, three or four months into our relationship, uh, if I felt like it was going anywhere, and I said, considering how much I've spent on plane tickets, it better be going somewhere. I... But the worth of something is shown by what you're paying for it. Man, I never, I didn't think anything about the flights. It's just happy to do it. Well, what does that say about people? For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The worth of people is shown by what God was willing to pay for people. And every person you see today is precious to God. Boy, if we can get past all the things we're taught in our culture and just realize every person is precious to God. It'll change us and it'll change how God can use us. He sees the worth of people. He sees the needs of people, doesn't he? It says, uh, when Jesus saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless. I, uh, I really like the, the language in that. We're going to talk more about feeling compassion. But when he saw the crowds, he saw their need, that they were harassed and helpless. When I, I see crowds, you know, we travel some here and overseas because of our jobs. And, and I, generally, I see crowds as an annoyance. You know, they're kind of in, you know, in the way as I'm trying to get on a train or wherever. Jesus felt compassion. They were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. He saw their needs. You've probably heard Thoreau's quote that most people live out their lives, something to the effect, in quiet desperation. That's true, isn't it? Pascal was this famous uh, French mathematician who was also a really deeply devoted Christian, And he said, roughly translated from French, he said, there is within the heart of every person a void which no created thing can fill, but only the creator. Jesus saw the needs of people. They were like sheep without a shepherd. He knew as he looked at them that they needed him. I... I, because of my job with the navigators, I get asked about religions. I get asked about Christianity. We're in different countries that are Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or different things. And, and uh, when I was younger, I had all these uh, kind of reasoned uh, explanations for uh, Jesus and Christianity and apologetics. And, you know, now what I say... People say, what do you believe? I say, you know, I just believe everybody needs Jesus. That's what I believe. That what he offers is exactly what we need. Well, what about this, that? I, I don't know. I just think everybody needs Jesus. This is how, what it meant to me. Yeah, we see the needs of people. I, uh, I don't know if you guys remember that book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Years ago, it's really popular. Covey tells the story in there, Stephen. He says he was on a subway, and it was a Sunday morning, and everybody was just quiet. It was reading papers. It was in Manhattan. And uh, then 
there was a stop, and this man and his children entered the subway car, and they were the kids were just loud and out of control. They were pinging around. They were bumping into people, and the guy sat down next to Covey and just was kind of had his head bowed, like, you know, while his kids were disrupting. And finally, uh, Covey said, you know, your kids are really, I don't know if you know this, but they're really disturbing a lot of people. And uh, the young, uh, the man said, you know, you're right. I ought to do something about it. But we just came from the hospital where their mom died. They don't know how to act, and I don't know how to act either. And then he said this, can you imagine what I felt at that moment? He said, everything changed in an instant. And he said the, uh, the people around him heard uh, what this guy said, and everybody started interacting with it. We need to see the needs of people, not just be annoyed by people. Man. Tim Keller's pastor in Manhattan, really quotable guy, very interesting. You could talk about voted least likely, this small town Pennsylvania uh, pastor that God calls to uh, take over a church in Manhattan in New York. But he said, the message of the Bible is you're more sinful than you ever thought you were, and you're more loved than you ever dreamed you could be. That's, that's what we get to tell people. So we see the needs, then Jesus saw the potential of people. Did, uh, how many of you knew Microsoft was founded in Albuquerque? Started up as a business? Very interesting. I had several pages on this, but I, I wanted to show this picture. Uh, know who that is? Yeah. So that was just a couple of years ago. Let me show you what he looked at in, like in 1977. He was 21. They had just signed their first contract, him and Paul Allen. They had seven employees here. And he bought a sports car and tried it out, got a ticket and got pulled in. And that's Bill Gates at 21. When I looked at that, I thought, you know, the... the the policemen, the neighbors, the other people, nobody had any idea what Bill Gates would become. And you know, God is the one who sees potential in people. He saw David. You know, I, I tell this story a lot. I ask people if they know who the prime or the high priest was when David was king. It was a guy named Zadok. And then I say, how many of you know somebody named Zadok? Now, how many of you know somebody named David? This shepherd boy that God decided would be king and that God used as the greatest spiritual influence of his generation and used to write the most well-known passage in the Bible around the world, the 23rd Psalm. God just sees that. When we see people, we don't see what God sees, do we? We need to see that potential. I like, I haven't memorized this yet. I was going to... Um, Try to quote it, but I don't want to do it without a net here. So I, uh, Romans 9, 25 and 26 in the Message Bible says, Hosea put it well. God said, I'll call nobodies and make them somebodies. I'll call the unloved and make them beloved. In the place where they yelled out, you're nobody. Now they're calling you God's living children. God sees that and we yearn for that, don't we? We see the potential. Okay, that's first principle. We need to see people the way God sees them. Say, you need to listen a little quicker. 
Uh, second principle is we need to care for people the way Jesus cared for people. I love, and I, I use the translation, and the translation I memorized for verse 36 was when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion. Some translations say had, and that's fine, but I like that. You know, Jesus felt compassion for people, and we see that by how he responds to people in so many ways. He just cared. The Greek word that's used for compassion here is used 12 times in the New Testament. Every time it's used, it's either about Jesus or by Jesus. This was core to who Jesus was. If we're disciples of Christ, we have to be compassionate people because Jesus is compassionate. He felt compassion. I, you know, I, you can look up the Greek words. I took two years of Greek. Some of you know that when I was in school and my main goal was to pass. So I'm not a great Greek scholar, but... Uh, the English word compassion comes from two words, calm and passion, that mean to suffer together. I feel your pain. Yeah, I like the English. I think that's really great. Um, after my wife died, I ran across Isaiah 63, 9. I suppose it was always in my Bible, but I never saw it before. It says, in all their distress... He, the Lord, too, was distressed, and the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and mercy, he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. In all our distress, he, too, is distressed. There is this perception of God, even among Christians, I think, as somewhat emotionally detached. But that's not what we see at the tomb of Lazarus. He's going to raise him from the dead, but he still weeps with Mary and Martha. We need to care for people. Now, we're not always great at this. <laughs> I, uh, I was reading this article, and this guy said, my wife's a registered nurse who used to fuss about every little thing that happened to me, but recently I thought I realized maybe the honeymoon's over. He said, I was trying to fix the attic fan. I lifted myself from the ladder into the attic, scratched my forehead on a crossbeam. If you've ever been in an attic, you've probably done that. I have. Crawling along, I got splinters in both hands. I was stepping back down the ladder, missed the rungs, fell to the floor, <laughs> and turned my ankle and uh, tore my pants. And I limped into the kitchen. My wife, the nurse, took one look at me and said, are those your good pants? <laughs> We're not always as compassionate as we ought to be, should we? We need to be compassionate. I, I got this idea from, a, I changed it, but I got this idea from a book by, uh, called uh, How to Be a Contagious Christian, and that's Watching Out for Compassion Quenchers. And I put four down. You can probably think of others. One is just busyness, right? We just get busy. Someone observed, you, uh, people who know me, this, I'm a busy person. I, and by the way, in America, busyness is a virtue, right? I work with business people. We always talk about how busy we are. Nobody goes, for shame, you know. No, good for you. It shows you work hard. Shows you. Busyness can be a real compassion quencher. Someone said, it's possible the most important thing God has for me today is not on my schedule or agenda. I need to be careful I'm not too busy to do what God wants me to do. Good Samaritan may be a good story of that. Jesus was just never too busy to help people, was he? Busyness. Another thing with uh, Jesus that um, he modeled avoiding is shallowness. 
how important it is that we have a deep relationship with the Lord. Spending time in the Word and prayer is really critical to us having the compassion of Christ. Uh, Luke 6, 12 says Jesus spent the whole night in prayer. Luke 5, 16 says he would often slip away to the wilderness and pray prayer. Luke 21, 31 and, or 22, 31 and 32, he's, this is before Peter denies him three times. He, and Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. And when you have returned, strengthen your brethren. Prayer, time, taking time, making time with the Lord. I, uh, I like this quote. I've got a bunch of quotes on habits. Apparently, I don't apply them to my eating, but it says, good habits, once well established, are just as hard to break as bad habits. And that's an encouraging thought, isn't it? So if I'm really disciplined in time in the word every day, prayer every day, good habits get as hard to break as bad habits. The third one is selfishness. I think um, one of the verses there, Mark 10, 45, says of Jesus, Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. That challenge. We have to watch out for this in church, don't we? we? If we're not careful, we approach church as consumers. How was church? Well, people weren't very friendly. Um, somebody sat in my seat. It wasn't the music I really liked. Those are all consumer answers, right? Jesus said we came not to be served, not to be consumers, but to serve. You know, we're here, and I... You know, I think we go to Pastor Lamar and to David and Dane and Gregory and the whole staff, and you say, you do whatever, as long as it's true to Jesus and the Bible, you do whatever it takes to reach uh, the next generation. Do whatever it takes. It's about them. It's not about me. I tell this story. We were having a navigator conference, a city conference, and there were 150 or so people in this uh, room, and the guys leading the music were all 19 or 20, and there wasn't one song I knew that they led. And uh, I was getting a little irritated, and I was the speaker, so it wasn't really a great time to get irritated. And then I heard something. I looked around, and behind me, there was this whole table of college students, eight, ten of them, and they were singing. They had their eyes closed. They were holding their And you could tell they were just deeply blessed by this music, and I said, Lord, it's not about me, it's about them. Man, if we do music, if we do messages, if we do church in a way that reaches people in their 20s, 30s, that'd be fine, you know, take a step back. So selfishness, I always, how many old dog owners in here? Let's see, how many dog owners? My dog passed away about a year ago. How many cat owners? Somebody said, dogs have owners, cats have staff. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> you know, you, get, you buy a dog, you feed him, you love him, you take care of him, that dog thinks you're God. You do the same thing with a cat, buy him, love him, feed him, take care of him, he thinks he's God. <laughs> and I, you know, I, I read that and I thought, am I more like a dog or a cat in my relationship to God? Is it about me or is it about him? Selfishness. And then the last one is separateness. Jesus was called a friend of sinners, wasn't he? And that was, by the way, when he was called a friend of sinners, it was 
um, it was a criticism. They weren't commending him. They were condemning him for his free association with irreligious people. Boy, if we're going to follow Jesus, we'd better be friends of sinners. Compassion quenchers. There's a guy named Bob Pierce. I've used this. Some of you know me. You've heard me. He was one of the founders of World Vision. You've probably heard that. One of the largest Christian charitable organizations in the world. And he wrote on a blank sheet at the front of his Bible, one of the blank pages, he said, let my heart be broken by the things that break the heart of God. Yeah, compassion. The third principle is we need to pray for people the way Jesus did. It's interesting, he said... The harvest, he said he saw the people and felt compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless. And he turned to his disciples and said, Harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest. I thought that's not what I would have said. I would have said, therefore, go. And he is going to say go, but before you can go, you need to pray. And I like this quote. Guy said, we need to talk to God about people, then talk to people about God. So we need to pray for people, don't we? Neighbors. I love that uh, version of uh, this little light of mine for the neighborhood. Maybe we need to pray for our neighbors. And then the fourth principle is we need to help people the way Jesus did. The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Um, in the New Living, it says, The harvest is so great, but the workers are so few. We have to watch that, don't we? Let me give you a quick exercise. This is going to take 30 seconds, okay? What I want you to do is, uh, even if you're sitting by yourself, you may have to get up. But I want you to turn somewhere, introduce yourself, tell somebody your name, and get their name. You only have 30 seconds. Ready? Say, hi, my name is this. What's your name? My name is this. Clearly, you all enjoy you talking more than me talking. I like that level of energy. I, it just, I've done this before. It always makes me smile to ask a group of people to do that. But in about 30 seconds or less, we basically welcomed every single person in this room. Now, how long would it take Lamar to do the same thing? How long would it take the staff to do the same thing? But if everybody does it, you know, we need to help people the way Jesus did. And I, I wrote down two things we see with Jesus. Is one is he helped people know, uh, know him, know Jesus, and he helped people grow in Jesus. And he did this all the time. He was helping people in their relationship with him. There's a lot we could talk about there. And close with the story. I read this in a, a book. I'd read, I bought this book called uh, Teaching to Change Lives, and this was in the foreword about the author. The author said, As a boy, I lived in a rough neighborhood in North Philadelphia, a neighborhood where they said an evangelical 
uh, church could never be planted. But God has a great sense of humor, and whenever anyone decides what can't be done, he does it. So he led a small group of Christians to band together, buy a little house in this neighborhood, and start a church. One of the members of this little church was a guy named Walt. He only had a sixth grade education. He was single, didn't have an impressive job. But one day, Walt told the Sunday school director at this little church he wanted to teach a Sunday school class. And the director said, well, that's great, but we don't have a class for you to teach. And Walt said, no, I really feel like God wants me to teach a class. I was thinking maybe we should do this with more guys like me who teach connection classes. He said, good, go out and get a class. Anybody you find is yours. That's what he said. So Walt came into my neighborhood, he said, into this little community. He said, the first time I met Walt, I think he was 11 years old at the time, we were, I was playing marbles out on the concrete. And Walt said, how would you like to go to Sunday school? <laughs> and... Uh, the author said, I wasn't interested in anything with the word school, and it had to be bad news. So he said, and he said, no. And he said, well, how about a game of marbles? So they started playing marbles. Soon, I would have followed Walt anywhere. Walt picked up a total of 13 boys in that community for his Sunday school class, just that way. Nine of whom were from broken homes, including me. 11 of that 13 eventually went into full-time Christian work. He said, I can't tell you much about what Wall said, but I can tell you everything about him. He loved me with Jesus' love. Walt, 11 of 13. The guy who wrote this and the stories about this guy named Howard Hendricks. He was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary for about 50 years spoken in 80 countries, one of the keynote speakers for Promise Keepers. He mentored Charles Swindoll, Tony Evans, David Jeremiah, many others. But it all goes back to Walt, didn't it? Yeah. What's that last little thing I put up, that last screen? Yeah. Some of us may be called to go across an ocean, but all of us are called to go across the street, the yard, the room. I'd like you to write one thing at the bottom of your note sheet. And I've been thinking about this a lot for myself. And that is, someone needs my help. Just write that down. Someone needs my help. Father, we thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for your example. Uh, help us to see people the way you see people. Help us to care for people the way you care for people. Help us to pray for people the way you do. Help us to help people the way you do. We just pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.